Well, you probably already have Psalm number 49 in view, but um, as you are opening your Bible and getting situated, I'll invite you also to get one of your ribbons or your finger or your thumb or however you have to do it over into the Gospel of Luke chapter number 12. And so what I want to do, I want to give you a word or a note on something by way of introduction that is very important to note. Um, so when you study the Bible, usually what happens is the New Testament shines a light back on the Old Testament. So it's almost like when you read the New Testament and you read how the New Testament writers and the servants of the Lord uh, speak about the Old Testament, there's a lot of sort of aha moments. Like, you know, that's what they were talking about. But uh, sometimes it works the opposite. Sometimes you have an Old Testament passage that really does shine light and understanding on a New Testament passage. And so I think that Psalm 49 is definitely one of those where you have a definite connection between this Old Testament passage and a very important New Testament passage. So let's um, look at Luke chapter number 12, verses 13 through 31. I'm going to read them for us. This is the parable of the rich fool. He said, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God ends our reading in the gospel of Luke chapter 12 this parable of the Lord Jesus really does illustrate the message and the truth that we find in the 49th psalm I want to read Psalm 49 to you in its entirety now in light of what you just read in Luke 12 the Bible says in Psalm 49 verse 1, Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. 
Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boast. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd." And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed... And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. May God bless the reading of his word. The rich fool, the rich fool. Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12 illustrate perfectly for us the burning message of Psalm 49. In fact, Psalm 49 is essentially a commentary on Christ's parable in Luke 12. What Psalm 49 does is it explores the answer to the riddle posed in verses 5 and 6. Did you see the riddle? The riddle in verse 5 of Psalm 49 is, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Back up to verse 4, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. And so here you have a riddle being given to us. Isn't this very fascinating? Isn't this very intriguing. You have a riddle in Psalm number 49. And in verse 4, he says that there's a riddle. He's going to give you one. But then in verses 5 and 6, he gives you the riddle in the form of a question. Psalm 49 explores this riddle within the context of death, humanity, and the struggle for power. The psalmist is asking a rather striking question, and let us pay close attention to the answer and to the teaching of this great portion of God's Word. The title of the message this morning is The Mystery or the Riddle of Life, Death, and Prosperity. The Riddle of Life, Death, and Prosperity. Let us come to search out the answer to the riddle of life, death, and prosperity. 
In a day and age when it seems as if very powerful political elites seek to rule our world, Psalm 49 offers hope and encouragement to the people of God regarding the final fate of wealthy people who trust and boast in their riches. I'll say that again. Let us come to search out the answer to the riddle of human life, death, and prosperity in a day and age when it seems as if very powerful political elites seek to rule our world. Psalm 49 offers hope and encouragement to the people of God regarding the final fate of wealthy people who trust and boast in their riches. I have three points this morning. A misplaced trust in uncertain riches. Psalm 49 verses 1 through 6. A misplaced trust in uncertain riches. Point number two. The inescapable reality of death. The inescapable reality of death. Verses 7 through 12. And point three, the great contrast in verses 13 through 15. Now, I've, as you see, I'm not going to be able to get to every little piece of this. In fact, this is a psalm that you could very easily break up into at least two messages, if not more. But we're doing one, so I don't have time to go into all of the little details in this psalm. I'm not even outlining it as fully as it could be outlined. This is a simple outline for the purpose of teaching and preaching on Sunday morning. A misplaced trust in uncertain riches. Really, you have the first four verses. One, two, three, four, Psalm 49. These verses are what you would consider to be an introduction. And they set the stage and they set the atmosphere for what's going to be said. I want you to know, and I want you to notice, excuse me, in verse 1. He says, hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Verse 2, he said, both low and high, rich and poor together. This is a great theme of this psalm. It's equality. Equality. But it's a God-centered kind of equality as we're going to see as we move through the psalm. One of the things that divides humanity and always has and always will until the day the Lord comes back, is the wealthy versus the poor, and the poor versus the wealthy. You see this disconnect even in our culture today. But what this great psalm does, and I want you to notice the phrase, inhabitants of the world. Do you see that in verse 1? Normally, the word in Hebrew that they would use to describe the world, the, the ball of dirt and oxygen and gases that sort of swirl around the sun, uh, this is a very specific word in Hebrew, but that's not the word that this psalmist uses to describe world. This is a very unique world, uh, word. This quote-unquote world in our language or in English, in the Hebrew language, it has to do with life, with lifetime, with the space and time in which human beings live. Thus, a better translation for this phrase might be all the inhabitants of this life. 
So it's not just the world, as in the planet called Earth. It's actually those who are given the gift of life. It's those who are part of human culture and human beings, hu humanity as a whole. Humanity, but with a specific eye on humanity that lives out their life day by day and the interactions which human beings have with one another and the culture and the environment and the atmosphere which all human beings live. And this is important because you come into verse 2 and he's very specific. He said, both low and high, rich and poor, together. This is a call to all to hear what the psalmist has to say. And the psalmist is saying, I have an indiscriminate audience. It's not just poor folk that he's talking to. It's not just rich folk that he's talking to. But what the psalmist is doing is lumping everyone together. And we'll see why he does that in just a moment. I want to show you verses 3 and 4. Now this is all by way of introduction. Verses 3 and 4, he said, My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. And this fir these first two words, wisdom and understanding, or wisdom and insight, as some of the translations say, this deals with the right kind of lifestyle and conduct which we are seeking to be living. So it has the idea of your thoughts and your actions. It's not just sort of this mental, like I can assent to all the right theology and all the right stuff that the Bible says, but really it is a, a, a life, a changed life that the psalmist is calling us to. And that sort of goes back to this very special word that he employs for world. It's the world and the inhabitants of this life. All that are living and breathing and calling themselves human beings and part of states and cities and countries and cultures. It's a sort of idea that the psalmist is calling upon all human beings everywhere to listen and to hear and if we're going to live a life of right conduct if we're going to live a life that has discernment and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and insight the psalmist says this psalm is for you and this is important because he's going to give us wisdom understanding knowledge and insight but the framework for which the psalmist is going to give us this wisdom and knowledge comes to you in the form of verse 4. Notice what he said. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. These words proverb and riddle deal with the way in which the psalmist will disclose the said wisdom and understanding that he mentioned in the third verse. So he's going to teach us something. And he's going to teach us something and he's going to use a proverb, a riddle to teach us knowledge, wisdom, insight, and understanding. How to live rightly, how to think rightly, and how to have a proper view of human culture, humanity, those that surround us, ourselves, and our relationship to the God that created all things as we know it. Now this is important because this sets the introduction for the 49th Psalm. We have before us a proverb and a riddle. The purpose of this proverb and riddle is to teach us knowledge, wisdom, insight, and understanding that we may live and think rightly, that we may rightly relate to God and to our fellow human being, and that we would know how to live a life that honors and glorifies God while we live here in our lifetimes.
Now then, he presents a puzzling riddle in verses 5 and 6. He said, why should I fear in the days of trouble? Verses 5 and 6, he said, why should I fear in the days or times of trouble? For the psalmist, the quote-unquote days of trouble are when the iniquity of evildoers or deceivers surrounds. So he said in verse 5, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? The psalmist envisions himself trying to live for God, trying to do the right thing, trying to have the right kind of thoughts, trying to do the right thing and be the right thing and yet he's surrounded by a culture of very wealthy people who seek to do evil to him and to others. If I was to break down verses five, or verse 5 into our modern English vernacular, it would be in the form of a question that would sound like this. Should I fear the words and deeds of powerful, oppressive, wealthy people which threaten my existence every day? That's basically what he's saying. In the ancient world, there was a very striking, staunch disconnect between those who were wealthy and those who were poor. In the ancient world, it's still that way in our world, but not really because we sort of live in the civilized West where we have a middle class, or in that class maybe shrinking every year, but we still have a middle class, and we still sort of have a evenly somewhat distribution of wealth, although that's quickly fading in our world as well. But for the people who lived in ancient cultures, it was they had every right to be fearful of those who were eminently wealthy. And the reason was is because generally people who were wealthy in the ancient world were oppressive and destructive to those who did not have as much wealth as they did. And what I'm going to submit to you is it's still the same and it's still true even in our day today. And so here you have the context of this great psalm. I'm not the one that makes up context. The Bible gives its own context. The psalmist said that he was going to give us a riddle and a proverb, didn't he? In Psalm number uh, Psalm 49 verse 4, he said that. And so what he does in verses 5 and 6 is he then gives you the riddle. And the riddle is, comes in the form of a question, and it really is striking what he's asking. He's saying these wealthy, oppressive people that seek to rule and oppress the poor of the world, the poor and needy, he said, should we fear them? Should we fear those in our day even that are eminently, vastly wealthy? I think that Jeff Bezos is on the track to become the world's first trillionaire. Can you even imagine such a thing? The world's first trillionaire. That is staggering. And our world is also filled with very wealthy, elite, and oppressive people who seek their own benefit to seek to rule the world in their own way, and so on and so forth. And the psalmist now is going to, after this sixth verse, he's going to start unpacking. And let's see what he begins to pull out of the box as he unpacks this riddle, shall we? Let's begin reading in verse number 7. What is the answer to the riddle of why should I fear or should I fear wealthy oppressive elites that seek to encroach upon my daily life and seek to oppress me all the time? 
The psalmist answers in verse 7 and really it culminates in verse 15 or verse, uh, yeah, verse 14 and 15. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. The psalmist begins by answering the riddle. He begins by saying that at death or in death, all human beings are equal. I want you to think about this for a moment. In death, all human beings are equal. In other words, the death ratio is one to one, 100%. Wealth may be able to buy oppressive elite people a lot of things, but it cannot purchase redemption, the psalmist says. Let's go on. The declaration that he makes is that all humanity must face death and that in death human beings are all equal. This is a striking thought. We're going to talk about this this morning. The words that he uses are the words ransom, redemption. It's all synonyms for the same word. The idea is purchasing one from the slave market. One of the first times that this word redeem is mentioned. And for the Jewish reader who came across Psalm 49 and they saw this ransom redeeming language that was being employed, there would have been a specific passage of scripture that they would have automatically associated with. For the Jewish reader under the Old Covenant, speaking and knowing Hebrew, when they saw these words successively all throughout this psalm, one after another, their mind would have been drawn back to the passage about redemption. And the passage in the Old Testament about redemption is Exodus chapter 13, 12 through 15. I'll quote it for you. I'll read it. It says, You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come for your sons asks, one of your sons asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Here is the great answer to the riddle. It is this. Now, there's several of them. There is only one who can truly pay the price of redemption to rescue us from Sheol or the grave. There's only one who can purchase the price of redemption, and it is God Himself. Deliverance from Sheol, the grave, is found in redemption. But wealth cannot redeem wealthy people from the grave. There's only one kind of redemption in the Bible that can redeem us from Sheol. That's death in the grave. That's life without God beyond the grave. 
In our New Testament terms, we would call it hell. There's only one kind of redemption that can save us from death, hell, and the grave, and that is blood redemption. Wealth redemption, silver and gold cannot buy. Redemption from the grave of Sheol is what the psalmist is saying. He said, what does it matter how much money you got? Your money ain't going to save you whenever they chalk you into the ground someday. Whenever the grave seeks to swallow you up and carry you away to a place that this psalm says, I want to remind you of it in verse number, look at this. Verse 19, he said, His soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. This Sheol, this grave, this destruction, this life without God beyond the grave, this place of death and darkness, the, this is a place where people will no longer see light and their wealth cannot deliver them. This is the great message of this psalm. The point in verse 9 of Psalm 49 the point is that even the wealthy do not have enough riches to pay the ransom to redeem themselves from the inevitable fate of all humanity, that is death, the pit, Sheol, etc., etc. I want to read an extended piece for you. I did not write this. I ask you to please pay attention. Quote, Imagine a future in which a machine can scan your brain and migrate the essentials of your mind to a computer. It's called mind uploading, preserving a person's consciousness in a digital afterlife. As a neuroscientist, I'm convinced that mind uploading will happen someday. There are no laws of physics that stand in the way. It depends, however, on technology that has not been invented. So nobody knows when mind uploading might become available. The article goes on. However, the long technology, however long the technology takes, it seems likely to be a part of our future, so it's worth taking a moment now to think about the implications. What will mind uploading mean for us philosophically and morally? Suppose I decide to have my brain scanned and my mind uploaded. Obviously, nobody knows what the process will really entail, but here's one scenario. A conscious mind wakes up. It has my personality, memories, wisdom, and emotions. It thinks it's me. It can continue to learn and remember because adaptability is the essence of an artificial neural network. Its synaptic connections continue to change with experience. In that imagined future, who would accumulate the most power? One possible answer is the people who live in the simulated world. They've already built a lifetime of political and economic connections. Once uploaded, they'll have centuries to accumulate more resources and to expand their empires of influence. People who live in the physical world would be mere neophytes in comparison. Biological people would become a, lar a larval stage of a human, each of them aspiring to be among the lucky few who are allowed to metamorphose into the immortal elites who own the world 
Are you all listening to this? A second possible answer is that the most powerful people would be those who control access to the simulated world. Think about how religions work. People at the top tell you that if you behave well, you'll enter heaven, and if you behave badly, you may end up in eternal punishment. A lot of wars have been fought based on that kind of motivation. We're told that suicide bombers are promised rewards in the afterlife, and yet religious demagogues offer an afterlife that can't be objectively confirmed. It's an insubstantial carrot and stick. Imagine the coercive power of an afterlife that is directly confirmable. The public could Skype with people who are in a digital heaven and, if the technology turns very dark, in a digital hell. Advertisers have known for a long time that nothing convinces people as powerfully as personal testimonial. Imagine if we all had access to the testimonials of people actually in the afterlife. Now imagine a political leader who offers that objectively confirmable heaven in return for loyalty and hell in return for betrayal. At that point, the gatekeepers of the digital afterlife can gain a level of power that is impossible for anyone today to really understand, end quote. Somebody says, Pastor, you've been watching too much sci-fi channel. But this article that I'm quoting from is not a critic's summary of the newest sci-fi film, a Matrix trilogy. This is not a summary of the film Tron. This is an article from the Wall Street Journal. written on September 13, 2019, by Dr. Michael S. A. Graziano. It's an excerpt from his book. By the way, he's also the professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University. Now, let me break what he's saying down in the most simple and layman's terms. There are very, very powerful, educated, wealthy people alive in our world today that believe that one day they're going to be able to download their consciousness into a supercomputer and that they're going to live forever in a digital simulated afterlife. They really believe that and they are developing software and running tests as we speak to try and make the technology available. The problem is, is that they have never read Psalm 49. And no matter what kind of technology, no matter what kind of programs, and no matter what kind of computers they develop, they will never be able to escape the inescapable reality of death. They will die. No matter what they think, no matter what they say, they will see the grave, just like you, just like I. They will have to walk the same road that the poor paupers of the world have had to walk. They'll have to walk through the same gates that the poor paupers of the world have to walk through, the gates of death. And at that moment, at the moment of death, the ground is level. All human beings are equal. What they want 
is for that not to be the case. They want an afterlife and immortality and eternity that they can gain and sustain apart from the giver of eternal life who is God himself. Now, I don't know about you, but this ought to be very concerning for us, theologically, biblically, according to Christianity. Oh, it's appealing, isn't it? I'll be able to download my consciousness into some supercomputer and live forever. Oh, no, you won't. They're wrong and they're dead wrong. It is appointed unto man wants to die, and after this the judgment, the Hebrew writer said. This is the theology of the elites that are seeking to rule our world. Aren't you excited? <laughs> These people are out of their minds. <laughs> They're not alone. Quote, the French atheist and scourge of Christianity, Voltaire, was a very rich man. He was the most famous person of the European Enlightenment in the sophisticated 18th century, and his writings, particularly his satirical <clears throat> attack on Christianity, Candidate, were read everywhere. Yet when Voltaire came to die, it is reported that he cried to his doctor in pain desperation, I will give you half of all I possess if you will give me six months more life. But of course, it was far beyond the doctor's ability to do that, and all Voltaire's great wealth could not slow death's advance. He died despairing. Verse 7 uses this truth to say that no man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. That is, no one can save another from death by money. You cannot be saved from death by money. May we never forget this truth, nor can you be saved from death by any other work that you do. Verses 10 and 11. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Dr. Boyce said, you can't take it with you. And isn't that true? Whatever wealth you have, you can't take it with you. The point is that death is inevitable and that when it comes, we must leave everything behind. Two men met in a streetcar one day and began to, act, to talk about a millionaire whose death had been announced in that morning's paper. How much did he leave? One asked the other. Everything he had, replied his companion. Years ago, when burial customs were quite a bit different from what they are now, people used to make the same point when they said, Shrouds have no pockets. Shrouds have no pockets. The ancient Egyptians, which I actually think that there's a connection between the theology and the teaching that we have in this psalm with that of the ancient Egyptians, because he mentions redemption, and that would have automatically brought the Hebrews back to Exodus and Exodus 13. But if you've ever studied Egyptology at all and seen 
uh, maybe read a book or watch a television program when they discover a new tomb. Usually the sarcophagi, the, the, the burial chamber, the coffin, usually it's filled with hieroglyphs that depict the afterlife. Here you have Tutankhamun sailing off into the eternal afterlife, you know. He's got wealth, he's got riches, he's got statues, he's got gold, he's got silver. And the ancient Egyptians believed that they were going to take all that with them into the afterlife. And they were wrong. The writer of the psalm reminds us that the answer to the riddle is found in verses 13 through 15. Let's look at the answer. This is the sort of creme de la creme, the cherry on top. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. That means that they have a lot of followers, these wealthy people. Verse 14, like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. The answer to the riddle, why should I fear, in verse 5, why should I fear the oppressive wealthy elite people who seek to encroach and disrupt my daily life? Why should I fear them? The psalmist declares, you should not fear because like sheep, for Sheol they are appointed. They are going to die. They will stand in judgment. They will be cast into everlasting darkness. God will one day sort them out. And I want to close on this final great contrast. Those who trust in riches are contrasted with those who trust in the Lord. Probably the most condemning indictment that I have seen against the unredeemed in all of the 49 Psalms, and there's been a lot of it. But the most condemning indictment up until this point is found, I believe, in verse 14. Look at what he said. Does your Bible say, death shall be their shepherd? I want to stop and I want to consider this for a moment because death shall be their shepherd. I think the psalmist, and I'm not alone, has the contrast between death being their shepherd and Psalm 23, the Lord being our shepherd, or those who know the Lord. See, really, it's the choice is simple. Either you let the Lord be your shepherd, or death will be your shepherd. As I was meditating on this, I seen Christ with my mind's eye. You know, I try to envision Scripture. That's what meditation means. I tried to envision scripture, and I saw the Lord Jesus, God himself, shepherding his people in compassion and in love, and Psalm 23 really illustrates the shepherdhood of God in Christ perfectly. But when I came to the 14th verse of Psalm number 49, I had another vision or another meditation, another thing in my mind, another image. I saw the Grim Reaper shepherding people. You know the Grim Reaper? And people y'all are old enough to remember the Grim Reaper. 
These people have the grim reaper as their shepherd. If you're trusting in anything other than the blood of a God-ordained Redeemer this morning, you have the grim reaper for your shepherd. Death is the shepherd that will shepherd those who trust in uncertain riches. Boy, have they misplaced their trust in uncertain riches. You can't take it with you. The psalmist answers the riddle. Like sheep to shale they are appointed, death shall be their shepherd. The great but God in verse 15, look at it. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Again, what is the only kind of ransom and redemption that's being paid in the Old Testament? It's redemption by blood. I'll close with a quote from Nancy Walford. In its position in book two of the Psalter, might the words of Psalm 49 be words of admonition to King Solomon? Book 1 focuses on David. In book 2, David moves to the background and his son and successor, Solomon, assumes control of the kingdom. Solomon was a great king known far and wide for his wisdom and his riches, 1 Kings chapters 3 verse, uh, through verse, uh, chapter 10. But Solomon was not without his flaws. We read in 1 Kings 11, King Solomon loved many foreign women. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not true to the Lord his God. Then the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. Indeed, Solomon could boast in his riches and could claim great wisdom. But in the end, he turned away from God and did not find favor in God's eyes. As the proverb goes, a human being with such wealth cannot have insight. Psalm 49 verse 12. Psalm 49 reminds the hearer that wealth and position and boasting do not give one position in the realm of God. Craigie writes, the wisdom teacher in Psalm 49 eliminates two possible kinds of human fear. The fear of foes in times of trial in verse 5 and the fear that the wealthy have some kind of advantage in the face of death in verse 17. The reverence of the Lord is the path to wisdom and meaning in life. The message echoed by Jesus in Luke 12, Do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. Instead, strive for God's kingdom, and the things will be given to you as well. End quote. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you, Lord for the reminder and the clear teaching of this great psalm that nothing can save but the blood of Jesus. As the hymn sang this morning, what can wash away our sin? What can ransom and redeem the human soul? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Dear God, I ask and pray if there's anyone here trusting in anything other than the shed blood, the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ the Lord, that today would be the day where they would come to understand that, you can, that they can either have the Lord as their shepherd or they can have death 
the grim reaper can be their shepherd. Lord, I pray that you would awaken hearts to their need. Lord, we thank you for your love to us, for your grace, and for your mercy. And we thank you for the blood and for the redemption that was purchased for us on Calvary. We pray all these things in faith and in Jesus' name. Amen.